Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. On January 8, 1993, Brown's Chicken and Pasta Fast Food Restaurant at 168 West Northwest Highway in Palatine, Illinois, was closing for the night at 9 p.m. when two people entered the restaurant. At the restaurant that night was owners 50-year-old Richard and 49-year-old Lynn Ellenfeld and five employees, 46-year-old Guadalupe Maldonado, 16-year-old Michael Castro, and 17-year-old Rico Solis, 32-year-old Thomas Menez, and 32-year-old Marcus Nelson, seven people in total. Rico and Michael were students at Palatine High School working part-time at the restaurant. Owners Richard and Lynn Ellenfeld were described by many as caring, energetic, and spiritually centered. They had recently bought the establishment that June and worked 90 to 100 hours a week to make it successful. They even had their three daughters, Joy, Dana, and Jennifer Ellenfeld, help out at the restaurant from time to time. The two teens, Michael and Rico, were filling in that night for two of the owner's daughters, who instead went to the big Palatine frimmed basketball game. Michael's parents called the police a couple of hours after the restaurant closed because he never arrived home. Later, Guadalupe's wife also called the police, concerned that her husband never arrived home from work and that his car was still in the closed Brown's Chicken parking lot. When officers arrived at the restaurant, about five and a half hours after closing, they spotted the rear employee's door open. Inside, they found the seven bodies in two separate walk-in coolers. Six were found shot to death while Lynn was killed with a knife. The scene was brutal and investigators theorize that some of the victims may have been tortured before being murdered. The youngest of them, 16 and 17-year-olds Michael and Rico, apparently were singled out for particularly brutal treatment. Both were shot nearly twice as many times as the other victims, leading to speculation that the teens may have attempted to resist. Lynn's neck wound suggested to investigators that the attackers may have been trying to pressure someone to open the safe. The safe contained a top and bottom compartment, but only the top compartment, which contained $1,200, had been emptied. The bottom compartment, which held money for bank deposits, was still locked and contained $1,000. A key to the bottom compartment was found in the store, but investigators would not say where. Investigators believe that the robbers rounded up the workers and demanded money. 
They believe that Lynn's throat was slashed after her and 32-year-old Marcus failed to open both compartments of the safe. It was then that the shooting began. The other five victims were found murdered inside of the restaurant's coolers. The entire robbery and murders took about 40 minutes, a time estimate based on a stalled wall clock reading 9.50 p.m. Investigators don't know why the clock stopped, but surmised a power failure or a ricochet from one of the bullets damaged the clock. Police believe the killers entered the restaurant at about 9.10 p.m. after the last customers had walked out. An Elgin man who'd recently been in the restaurant and had shouted threats against employees was arrested within hours of the crime when police stormed his home. But he was released two days later due to lack of evidence. Angry about his arrest, he would sue the city of Palatine in civil court and win. Other arrests were made in the coming months, but none led to the actual killers. The case remained unsolved for nearly nine years and quickly became dubbed the Brown's Chicken Massacre. Then, in 2002, Ann Lockett came forward and implicated her former boyfriend, James Degorski, and his associate, Juan Luna, in the crime. Ann said Degorski had threatened her not to tell anyone about the murders or he would kill her too. She said the primary murder weapon, a revolver, was thrown in the Fox River near Algonquin and Carpentersville after the massacre. According to prosecutors, Ann provided a key detail that no one outside the investigation knew, that one of the co-workers had vomited french fries. Police used DNA samples from the murder scene to match one of the suspects, Juan Luna. On May 16, 2002, Luna was driving home from his job at an appliance store when he was arrested at a gas station. Degorski was arrested in Indianapolis on the same day. Degorski and Luna were friends who met while attending Fremd High School. Luna was a former employee of the restaurant and was 18 at the time of the killings. His DNA matched the DNA found on a piece of partially eaten chicken found in the garbage during the crime scene investigation. Luna was one of the many former employees interviewed initially, but was not considered a suspect at the time. He told detectives he and Degorski entered the restaurant as it was closing at 9 p.m. and ordered a four-piece chicken dinner. His job was to make sure that no one ran out of the doors, while Degorski's role was to act as the aggressive one. He knew there were no alarms or weapons and that money was stored in the backroom safe. The pair tried to conceal their actions by using a sweater to open the front door and wore latex gloves to prevent fingerprints from being left at the scene. They also walked up to the store in the snow in a motion that would not leave footprints. While eating, they quickly put on latex gloves and forced the seven employees to the back of the store at gunpoint. Luna was following one worker toward the back of the restaurant when he heard a gunshot near the front counter. He said he saw Degorski shoot an employee who attempted to jump over the counter. After forcing Lynn to open the safe, they were all tragically executed. Seven lives violently taken for two people to share $1,200. The Palatine Police Department took the two suspects into custody on May 16, 2002, and once in the interrogation room, Luna confessed to the crime. During the trial, Luna's lawyers countered that the 43-minute videotaped statement by Luna 
was coerced and tried unsuccessfully to keep it out of the trial. In addition, they say that Luna was beaten and his family was threatened with deportation. On May 10, 2007, Luna was found guilty of all seven counts of murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. The state sought the death penalty, but the jury's vote of 11 to 1 in favor of the death penalty fell short. On September 29, 2009, James Degorski was found guilty of all seven counts of murder, largely on the testimony of his former girlfriend, Ann Lockett, and Eileen Bacala. They both stated that Degorski had confessed to the crime and threatened to hurt them if they ever told anyone. On October 20, 2009, he was also sentenced to life in prison without parole. All but two jurors voted for the death penalty in his case. Five years before his sentencing in 2004, Degorski sued Corrections Guard Officer Wilson, another correctional officer, and former Sheriff Michael Sheehan. The suit accused Wilson of using excessive force and the others of failing to stop him. As a result, Wilson was placed on unpaid leave and was eventually fired in 2004. In March 2014, a jury awarded James Degorski nearly half a million dollars in compensation and punitive damages after being beaten by Officer Wilson in Cook County Jail. The beating occurred on Degorski's first night in jail years before his criminal trial. He suffered facial fractures and metal plates that had to be surgically inserted into his face. The jury's decision to vote in Degorski's favor angered many Chicagoland residents, especially the families of Degorski's victims. Manny Castro, the mother of 16-year-old Michael Castro, who was murdered, said she thanked the correctional officer for beating Degorski. The Illinois Department of Corrections requested to recover about $100,000 of those damages for Degorski's upkeep. In the end, Judge Robert Dow Jr. reduced the punitive damages portion to $125,000, which Wilson was personally required to pay. The massacre hurt the entire Brown's Chicken franchise. Sales at all restaurants dropped 35% within months of the incident, and the company eventually had to close 100 restaurants in the Chicago area. The building was briefly a dry-cleaning business until it was demolished in 2001. The site remained vacant for another decade until a Chase Bank branch office was constructed at the former location and remains there in 2022. Also in 2022, Degorski exhausted his latest bid for a new trial. Degorski, at some point, created a Facebook page and website where he tells a story about being framed by his closest friends and says they chose reward money over defending him. I can't read the entire story because the website no longer works. As of November 2022, Luna and Degorski remain imprisoned at the Stateville Correctional Center where John Wayne Gacy was executed. Jeannie Baldwin-Reed was born in 1947 to Dallas and Nicholas and grew up on Elm Street in San Francisco, California. At 29, she was a sculptor artist living in the warehouse district of San Francisco in a two-bedroom apartment. The building was a large warehouse divided into studio spaces for several artists. Her roommate had moved out in the fall of 1975, leaving Jeannie all alone in the apartment. 
Her alma mater was Antioch University, and she earned a living by selling her mostly religious sculptures and taking odd jobs in bookstores. She was described as a woman who blended a bohemian lifestyle with somewhat old-fashioned values. She was also described as peaceful, traditional, and religious, and often hitchhiked or biked across the Golden Gate Bridge to Christ Episcopal Church in Sausalito. She kept a journal of dreams she had for herself, including traveling to Ethiopia or Jerusalem, writing a play or novel, starting a family, making and tending a garden, creating a sculpture that would last at least a hundred years, and dying at home near soft soil where the climate is gentle and birds sing even before dawn. Her mother had voiced concern about the area she lived in, but Jenny was limited on income and didn't seem to fear the apartment as she was known to leave the window open to let her cat named Nugget run in and out. She made the best of it and even wrote a journal entry where she studied the cockroaches crawling around in her apartment. After determining that they run three miles an hour, she wrote, The long and short of it is that cockroaches are smart. On May 18, 1976, Jeannie cycled home from a movie on her lemon yellow bicycle, pedaling across Market Street and the railroad tracks that separated the residential and industrial areas. She parked outside her building and climbed the stairs to her apartment. But unbeknownst to her, a killer was lying in wait. Earlier that day, Michael Kinney, a leather craftsman who lived in the same building as Jeannie, agreed to drive her to an appointment the next morning at 8 a.m. When that time came, May 19, 1976, at 8 a.m., Michael arrived, but there was no answer at her door. He yelled for her, but there was no response. Since most of the tenants kept a spare key in a secret place inside a room in the back of the building, he retrieved the key, thinking Jenny had overslept. But once inside, he found her deceased at the top of the stairs, her arms tied behind her back with a scarf. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death, and the murder weapon was still stuck in her. Male DNA was collected from her body, but DNA technology was years away. The police didn't get any leads, so her father, Nicholas, with whom she had been close to, hired private investigators to try to solve the case but they too were unable to make any progress. In the 1980s, the police briefly investigated the involvement of a satanic cult, but nothing came of that either, and her case would continue to go unsolved. In 1982, Jeannie's mother, Dallas Johnson, published a 176-page collection of Jeannie's journals and letters, alongside photographs and examples of her artwork titled In Pursuit of Art and Life, the Journals and Letters of a Young Sculptor, San Francisco, 1970-1976. Her letters are written mostly at night, on buses and streetcars, or during her lunch break. The collection shows many of the images of her homes and neighborhoods as she moved to lower-rent apartments in rougher areas to save money, originally living for three months in a three-room, $150-per-month apartment on the corner of Polk and Greenwich Streets, before moving to a cheaper, six-room flat on Oak Street in a poorer neighborhood with more crime. She spoke of her apartment being robbed for the second time and was glad her typewriter and camera weren't taken either time. She would move again to Potrero Hill 
and gain complete financial independence for the first time. Potrero Hill in the 1970s attracted artists and other bohemians. However, many of its quirkier shops have been lost, and long-standing residents complain about gentrification and the ever-rising rents that it brings. When Jenny moved to the area, her apartment had no hot plate or shower, resulting in her joining a gym known as the International Center to use its swimming pool and other facilities. While she felt at home in Potrero Hill, it had a reputation for crime and violence, which worried her parents. Jenny seemed reluctant to be affected by the potential threats of her surroundings, but later became more cautious and began carrying a sculptor's mallet under her poncho. In one entry, she begins a poem with the line, A scream from the street, and goes on to write, So why if we are equally human, see eye to eye, turn on to identical beats, why am I in fear here right now in my own supposed home, hemmed and pierced by sounds of actions unpeaceful to me? Two weeks before her death, Jenny had reportedly written in a journal about being in fear of a prowler she thought she had heard near her home. Many of her entries in the final days of her life show her considering the big questions, such as psyche, religion, and the afterlife. She concluded, I do not believe that we began from nothing. We were born out of pre-existing matter, and we fade back into that matter. Generations of human beings become generations of beliefs and images. Has grandmother's life ended because she is dead? Far from it. How far our lives continue after death depends how fully we live, how complete we are. In her last entry before her murder, the feelings of foreboding return. She recounts her dream, I am driving a tiny sports car, a Nash or Morris. The rear skids off the road and down the bank, and I have to tug things back up and think it is lucky my possessions are down to one knapsack. I'm being hunted and dive under a green pallet into a hole in the brambles. I am not sure whether they are friends or enemies. We are not all brothers. The flat on 15th Street would be her last home. When her body was discovered, there were a number of classified for-rent ads by the telephone, giving the impression that she had decided to move and was apartment hunting at the time of her death. Tragically, her murder robbed her of a chance to achieve several of the ambitions on her things-to-do-in-this-life list. Most tragically, the opportunity to start a family and be a grandmother. But her journals reveal that she achieved some of her dreams in her short life. She planted and tended a garden behind her studio, and her sculpture, Girl with a Hoop, which is now on display at Bethesda Park, close to her childhood home, has over 40 years of public display and will hopefully last the century she had wished for one of her sculptures. And after her death, her ashes were buried beneath the sculpture she created titled Figure on the Cross, which had been placed in a grove of pines in the parish garden near Soft Soul. Meanwhile, 33 years later, in 2009, DNA from the case matched to 63-year-old church deacon James Lee Mayfield, who was arrested and charged with Jeannie's murder. He was arrested at the Shiloh Full Gospel Church on 3rd Street in the Bayview, where he lived and worked. Mayfield had a history of rape and burglary and was convicted of her murder and sentenced to life in prison. He admitted to a psychologist that he had raped five women during the past year and a half. 
Since the death penalty was deemed unconstitutional at the time of the slaying, it was not on the table. Mayfield was not charged with rape as the statute of limitations on that crime had expired. He had a long rap sheet that included convictions for rape in 1968 and multiple burglaries from the late 60s to 1994. He was required to submit a DNA sample as part of his status as a felon, which is what ultimately led to him being caught. He has been denied parole thus far, but his next parole hearing will be in 2028 at the age of 82 if he is still alive. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.